Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Nicolas Massot. Nicolas is currently on the board of directors of Banco Ciudad, the third largest bank in Argentina. But more importantly, he was the former majority leader of Argentina's Chamber of Deputies. And he's a member of something called Republican Proposal, which is the one of the most prominent parties in Argentina known as PRO, P-R-O, in Argentina. Nicolás had a leading role in the very successful presidential campaign of 2015 in Argentina when Mauricio Macri became president. It's quite a significant campaign. He was the youngest ever leader of the Chamber of Deputies of Argentina in its history. Nicolás is an amazing politician. He's got a bright future in Argentina. I'm doing a series of interviews with politicians under the age of 55 in Latin America from various political perspectives, because I think it's important to understand where the future of Latin America is going is going to is a lot of it is expressed in these various perspectives that political leaders of this age group have. So, Nicolas, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the for the words and consideration. So, Nicolas, what motivated you to enter into politics? Well, probably as most of us do, it first motorized by this sense of responsibility that we have when you see that a country such as ours in Argentina has all the potential, but somehow we are not being able, and we haven't for the last, let's say, 40 to 50 years, we cannot really explode that potential. So on the first place, you tend to think that that's done only by, uh, you know, changing leadership and, and building better teams. Then at the end, you realize it's not that easy. And that what really matters and what really has to be done is to find some long-term agreements among all of us. It's not just winning an election and doing what you have proposed on a campaign, but it's rather being able to do that with all the forces, with all the political forces. I mean, bringing to the table the needed long-term agreements so you can guarantee things are done, whoever wins. I think that's the, the main lesson we learned or we should learn due to, let's say, the last three governments in Argentina. So what was your first job in politics, Nicolás? I used to uh, assist Emilio Monzó, which back in 2010, when I started, he was a state congressman in Buenos Aires province. And after a couple of months working with him, he received the deal from Mauricio Macri, which was still the mayor of Buenos Aires City. And he was thinking running for office on a presidential level. So he invited Monceau as his chief of campaign. And I, I was working with him. So that was my first job in politics. And, and also the way I started working in, in pro and with Mauricio Macri. And Mauricio Macri ran for president in 2011 for the first time, right? He didn't. In fact, he, that was the plan. But then on the middle of the campaign, before, let's say, 20 or 30 days before the date for nominations, he desisted. He decided not he to decided, run. He decided to run once again for re-election as mayor. And, uh, well, after a, a while, it proved to be a wise decision. And tell me about, were you in the city government of Buenos Aires for a time? 
I was for a couple of years the director of political reform. From there, we designed the bill that approved a new electoral system, which includes primary elections in Buenos Aires City, which were not there yet, and a, a, a different uh, ballot system. And tell me about what your role was in the 2015 election. Well, I moved to Cordoba for a mix of personal and political reasons, too, in 2012. Cordoba is the second largest province in the country after Buenos Aires, and it's right in the middle of the, of the country, geographically speaking. And from there, I, I was in charge of the national campaign for Cordoba province and for some other smaller provinces around Cordoba. So my main uh, task was coordinating the efforts of Cordoba's national campaign. And later on, in 2015, I was elected congressman representing Cordoba province. So that's how I entered Congress and later on became uh, the majority leader. And what was your role in the 2015 presidential campaign in addition to running yourself for the House of Deputies in 2015? In fact, my candidacy was a really last-minute decision. I, I wasn't really thinking on it. Usually there's a tradition, which is that if you are leading the campaign, you usually don't go for office. And that was my attitude, in fact. And it was only probably the last week or the last day before nominations where a group of, of all the politicians of Cordoba motivated me to go on the fifth. I mean, we elect congressmen by lists here. So Cordoba, for example, elects nine congressmen every two years. And that's uh, distributed proportionally. So until that election in 2015, there was no case in history in which any political party had obtained five seats out of nine. The maximum had been four. And I went on the fifth place of the list. And that was in 2015, the first time in history in which a political party got five seats. It was sort of like saying, well, okay, I'll, I'll take the fifth seat, but I'm probably not going to win, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, it was like a gesture, you know? And it was, it was like, I was like, I'll go along with this, but I don't think this is going to go anywhere. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's interesting you're talking about having a campaign role and running for office. I'm reading the biography of Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a very prominent Republican politician from the mid-1930s until the late 1960s, really. And he's from a familia patricia, as you'd say in Argentina. He's from a very old American family. And in 1950, he was convinced that the only way the Republican Party could survive as a party was to get Eisenhower to run for president in 1952. So he had served with Eisenhower in World War II, and he made several trips to Europe and to New York over a couple-year period to convince Eisenhower to run for president. And so I, he ran something called the Draft Eisenhower Initiative, or I don't know how to describe it. it, was a way to kind of convince Eisenhower to do it. It was sort of like an independent political movement to convince Eisenhower to run. And then when Eisenhower said, I will run for president, but you have to run my campaign. So Henry Cabot Lodge was at the time a senator from Massachusetts. This is in the late 40s and early 50s. And he had done a number of things in Massachusetts to clear the field of other previous politicians, to clear the way for John F. Kennedy in the Democratic Party to run. And so John F. Kennedy ran for Senate in 1952 against Henry Cabot Lodge when Henry Cabot Lodge was also running Dwight Eisenhower's presidential campaign. And Dwight Eisenhower lost his Senate seat in 1952. 
to John F. Kennedy creating John F. Kennedy's platform to run for president in 1960, of course. But Eisenhower won, and in some ways he saved the Republican Party and saved, in essence, the two-party system in the United States. I knew nothing about this until, I guess, about a week ago. I'm reading a book called The Last Brahmin. Anyway, so when you tell me the story about you managing being one of the campaign managers for Mauricio Macri and running for a House of Deputies seat, it reminds me of Henry Cabot Lodge, which I know is a little bit random, but it's related to this idea of running for a House seat and running someone else's campaign at the same time. So it's really interesting that you did these things. How did you become the majority leader if you were a first-term member from Cordoba and you had one fifth on the list? How did they pick you as the majority leader for the House of Deputies, given sort of the circumstances of your election? Well, yeah, that was quite interesting and rare. I, I would say two reasons. The first one was that together with Emilio Monceau, which in 2015 was elected Speaker of the House, we had the responsibility for all those years of building the alliances in the 24 provinces for Mauricio Macri and picking the best candidates. So what happened really is that at the end, when all the congressmen met a couple of days before of the first session to elect the authorities, most of the congresswomen and congressmen from the provinces of the countryside only knew me and Emilio. So, because we traveled to those provinces and met several times with them and convinced them to run for office and then build the alliances that made that possible. So, there was already a, a relationship and a bondage of trust among them and us. And the second reason is that Emilio, as a Speaker of the House, trusted a lot in me, as you know, the person that would help him with the agreements and passing all the bills. So those two factors, I think, were crucial for my election. Tell me, why did Mauricio Macri win in 2015? He won at a time when there hadn't been a traditional party. You know, someone for the Radical Party and the Peronist Party have been the two traditional parties in Argentina for much of the last 80 years. He wasn't from either of those parties. So it was highly unusual. And a number of leaders in the last 100 years have not finished. And there have been very few that have been able to finish a term democratically. He was able to finish his term, you know, without any kind of democratic interruption from 2015 to 2019. But he lost in 2019. So first talk about why did Mauricio Macri win in 2015 when he wasn't from a traditional party? What was the mix of things that allowed that to happen? And then I want to ask, like, why did he not succeed in 2019? But tell me first, how did he succeed and why in 2015? Well, of course, for both questions, there's a lot of different reasons. You barely can explain such important events only with one reason. But following the analysis you made in terms of the two mass parties in Argentinian history, I would say he won because there was already a lot of opposition among the people to 12 years of the Kirchner marriage in politics. Not precisely because the economy wasn't doing well. It wasn't, but it wasn't that bad. But especially because people started sensing that the Kirchner government started to be more and more authoritarian. They started not respecting very long-term institutions in, in our country. So... Mauricio Macri became the vehicle for all that people to protest. But also very important, Mauricio Macri understood that he needed a strong alliance with one of the two mass parties of Argentina, in this case, the Unión Cívica Radical. And that was the way in which Cambiemos, or 
which was a merger of Mauricio Macri's pro party and the radical part of the radical party. Yeah, somehow Mauricio Macri was a very popular nationwide figure, but he lacked of a party structure and local candidates in the 2000 uh, municipalities and the 24 provinces. So the, the radical party had that. They didn't have a national figure, but they did have very representative local politicians. So that merger explained a good deal of, of the success in 2015. And then I would say that what also contributed was that the Peronist party competed separately. So the Kirchner competed on one hand with Daniel Scioli as a candidate. And then Sergio Massa leaded another offer which had an alliance with a good number of governors of the provinces of the countryside that belonged to the Peronist party too. So to answer the second question on the same logic, I mean, Mauricio Macri lost for many reasons, but an electoral reason of that was that, the, but that he didn't understand, as he had understood in 2015, the importance of an electoral move. And that electoral move would have been seducing and, and incorporating several governors of the Peronist party to his government, instead of blaming all of the Peronist party for the past of Argentina, and what he managed, in fact, with that confrontation was unifying the Peronist Party. So for folks who don't follow this, Mauricio Macri in 2015 was able to bring a big, significant part of a traditional party with them. And the other traditional party, the Peronist Party, was split in two. In addition, there had been 12 years of either Mr. Kirchner as president and then two terms as Mrs. Kirchner as president. So 12 years of the same family had been president of the country. And so you had people being a little bit tired of the same faces for after 12 years. And so there was a desire for some kind of a change after 12 years. And the traditional parentist party split in two. And Mauricio Macri able to join up with a larger traditional party that didn't have a national figure. All those things contributed But then at the same time in 2019, what he didn't have was he had a unified Peronist party against his one term as president, Mauricio Macri. And so he didn't have a split Peronist phenomenon in 2019, making it harder for him to win. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great summary of one of the reasons. Let me ask something else for folks. So I would make the argument that the coalition that governed Argentina from 2015, 2019, was a mix of center-left and center-right stakeholders. So it governed largely from the center, but it was a co- in some ways sort of a coalition of center-right and center-left perspectives. And in some ways, it made it difficult for Mauricio Macri to take very extremely strong reform positions, for example, in the economic sphere, because he might alienate part of his coalition by doing those sorts of things. Is that a fair characterization of the political constraints that Mauricio Macri found as a result? He won on sort of a fragile coalition. Is that a way to describe it? Is that fair? Yeah, but I mean, it's very difficult to label Argentinian politics. I agree with that. That's absolutely right. It's true. For outsiders, I understand. I agree with you. It's absolutely mixed up. I mean, this is not the U.S. in that sense. Or even Chile or the United Kingdom or, right, or Spain. Argentina is different. I mean, I would say nowadays the two big coalitions, the Peronist Party coalition on on one hand and the pro-radical coalition on the other, 
they don't respond that much to ideological aspects as to class aspects. I would say the Peronists have a, a long-term alliance tradition with unions and social movements and lower yeah, working class people. Yeah, because when you see the programs, I mean, nowadays the Peronist party is ruling and they are taking quite, um, let's say, orthodox recipes in, in economy, which usually the Peronists don't do. They are cutting expenditure, they are increasing taxes, you know, I mean, it's a... Traditionally, that wasn't something you would expect them to do. No, they, you, you wouldn't expect that the center-left would lower pensions. Not It's not in their playbook. Yeah, but, but then they still do it, and they do it with a quite low political cost. It's deeper than the ideologies. It's more related to, to classes than to ideologies, I think. I want to talk a little bit more about politics, and then I want to to shift gears. So there's going to be some elections in 2020, and these are midterm elections. Are you going to run in 2021? You're not currently uh, in the House of Deputies. This was a little bit to your point about that no one had ever won on the fifth name on the list. And so I'm assuming in Cordoba, your party didn't have the same level of success in 2019 as it did in 2015, and that's why you were not elected for a second term. No, no. In fact, I didn't even run for it. Really? No, it was a personal decision. I mean, we had some very different points of view with respect to how we were managing power and alliances, and we had uh, developed quite a high level of criticism to our government, and I just found it was honest on on an intellectual point of view to step aside uh, if I wasn't uh, agreeing with the core of our political strategy. So it was a personal decision. With respect to next year, I don't think I'll try to get a seat on, on Congress, but rather I'm looking more for local politics and I'm planning to run for office as a mayor of Tigre, which is a quite large city on the suburbs of Buenos Aires. Yeah, it's a very important city. It's sort of like becoming mayor of uh, San Antonio or mayor of San Diego, sort of a significant medium-sized city in the United States. But it's also been the platform for other major politicians in Argentina. Sergio Massa was the mayor of Tigre for a time, and actually it was a very successful platform for him. And many people would say he managed the city well. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was sort of the take, in quotes. The take was that he had a good reputation managing the city. And so having a good, successful run as being a good manager of the city of Tigre has been a platform for other politicians to hire office. Is that Right? Is that, is that a fair yeah. statement? Yeah, because in fact, for people that are not familiarized, Buenos Aires, urbanistically speaking, is a 16 million uh, people. It's enormous. Yeah, but, then, but politically speaking, it's very divided. I mean, you have the Buenos Aires city, administrative-wise, has 3 million people, and the other 13 million are divided in 24 different cities that surround the capital city. So the whole thing, if you look at it from the air, it looks like a unity and, and it has the same issues, the same problems. And, and it's, a, urbanistically speaking, a mass of concrete with 16 million people inside. But then, administratively speaking, you have Buenos Aires City with 3 million and then 24 different cities around Tigre, for example, has half a million people. I did not know it was that big. That's an enormous city. Are the mayor elections next year? No, it, they are in 2023. Okay. Uh, next year, local-wide, you have uh, elections for... Uh, you have the midterm elections at the national level for, uh, a thir- I guess, a third of the Senate and half of the House of Deputies. Is that right? Or all the House of Deputies? Yeah, but nationwide, but then you have, you have elections for the three levels. National level, 
state level and local level. So the three levels are legislative positions. And will you you won't run for either state or local legislature, say in Tigray, for example, in 2021? I might, I might. You might, That'd be, and that would be a way to kind of get your, position yourself if you wanted to run for mayor down the road. It, it could be, yeah. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about foreign affairs a little bit with Argentina. What kind of a relationship does Argentina want to have with the United States? I mean, we both have similar, we had kind of, 100 years ago, we had similar sized economies. Argentina was at the fifth largest country in the world 120 years ago, one of the top five most developed countries in the world. You could make the argument Argentina could have been kind of a G7 country like Australia or Canada in terms of that level of economic development did not happen. So we've had kind of a history of complicated relationship. If you look at polling in Latin America, Argentina historically has had very, the United States enjoys very low levels of approval, or at least has enjoyed, you know, has experienced very low levels of approval in Argentina, some of the lowest in the region. What kind of relationship could you imagine the United States, and China is now the number one trading partner for Argentina. Mexico is the number one trading partner for the United States. Argentina is far away. The United States is far away from Argentina. Both countries are on both other sides of the world in some ways. So tell me a little bit about what kind of a relationship you could imagine Argentina having or what kind of relations you expect or hope to see the United States and Argentina having. Well, the first issue there is that uh, it's, it's very difficult to answer that as a country because one of the main failures of our political life, and I talked about this on the first question, is the lack of, of agreements. And of course, you're not supposed to agree on what would be your monetary policy. That's fine. I mean, you can have that as one of the issues you usually dispute. But I mean, a country, one of the aspects of a country is being recognized by the international community. And then you should have some sort of minimum level of agreement in how you will pick your international partners long term and how you want to be seen and you want to stand on the rest of the world. And we just don't have that. And we never have. And the U.S. and our relation with the U.S., is the best way of looking at that sort of confrontation between parties. Because for the Republican Party, let's say the Republican coalition, which is pro and radical party, whatsoever, yeah. internationally wise, the United States plays a key role together with Western Europe. And they have a more, let's say, traditional way of looking at the international relations. Uh, sometimes it looks like a very close and maybe too close relationship with the U.S. But then on the other hand, you have the Peronist Party, which usually built an identity on the opposition to the U.S. Yeah, uh, General Perón ran a campaign in 1946 called Braden o Perón, which was he ran against specifically the U.S. ambassador Sproul Braden, who is not remembered in the United States, but is famous in Argentina, Sproul Braden was the U.S. ambassador. I'm not sure if he was a political appointee. I'm going to have to go look on Wikipedia. But he ran his campaign explicitly as an anti-American political figure in Argentina. Don't forget Nestor Kirchner uh, receiving George W. Bush. In 2005. In 2005 and how they, with with Chavez... Ended the dream of the free trade of the Americas Agreement together. I think that's absolutely the the case. The only exception in the Peronist Party, the president of the Peronist Party that had an exception. Carlos Menem. With the, first with Bush and later with Clinton. Yeah, Bush 41 and, and Clinton. 
Yeah, yeah, I, that's absolutely right. No, it's absolutely the case. I guess going back to your point about a consensus, could you? Are you optimistic that you could get a consensus? They talk in Spanish of the concept of políticas del Estado, which is a way of saying yes. consensus-based governing. Spain has had this for a period of time in what was called the Pactos de Mancloa that were sort of a series of agreements starting in the 1970s, in the late 70s, after the death of Francisco Franco, to kind of say, here are going to be the rules of the game that the right and the left are going to play by, with mas o menos was sort of followed in Spain for decades, maybe for four decades. There's always been some talk for various decades in Argentina about Argentina needs a series of Pactos de Mancloa. So let me go back to your point at the beginning, and perhaps this this is, I guess, to your point about, okay, foreign policy is sort of a little bit of a function of this issue. Of, do we have consensus in our... The United States is losing a sense of consensus. We're having problems establishing pacto, you know, Políticas del Estado in the United States, and it's getting harder and much harder. So are you optimistic that Argentina can recomponer or put Humpty Dumpty back together, could create some kind of consensus of sort of Políticas del Estado in... Argentina, whether it's in monetary policy or economic policy or foreign policy or social policy, is that going to be possible over the next five to ten years in Argentina? To be honest, I am not very optimistic in the very short term. This is, let's say, the next two to three years. I think that as long as Cristina Kirchner and Mauricio Macri still lead their respective parties of Argentinian politics, that would be very tough because uh, polarization is just too much and it, it became personal. But then on the medium term, let's say, as you said, five to 10 years, I am definitely optimistic. I think that the new generation of politicians, which already almost were born or at least rise on democracy and the democracy and that never lived or saw the violent of the 70s. Of the 70s. And I think we have on our inner personality already incorporated the dialogue and the consensus needed to achieve these policies. And then, of course, the failure of our country is, is so explicit that uh, we ought to try a different strategy. I mean, we cannot just keep on confrontating or... Keep or fighting each other. So without crachándote or dejándote mal, could you name one or two Peronist politicians that you think are interesting, that you think are sort of people that you worked with when you were in the House of Deputies without, like, hurting them, if I can put it that way, by you hablando bien de ellos. Maybe that's bad. It would hurt them politically. But are there one or two people that you think are kind of interesting? Parentist politicians you may not agree with on everything, but you think are parentist that are people to watch under the age of 45? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of them. There's a new generation of governors in many provinces which are very good governors in terms of the work they are doing and very interesting politicians. I'm thinking about Sergio Uniac in San Juan, for example, or Omar Perotti in Santa Fe. Juan Schiaretti in Córdoba is already older. He's a very important politician of the last 25 to 30 years, but he's a very good example as well. Then you have in the cities around Buenos Aires, I just mentioned, you have many mayors that are also very interesting figures like uh, Mariano Cascallares in Almirante Brown or even Gabriel Catopodis, which is now Ministry of Public Works in the national government. There's another ministry, Mario Meoni, the Ministry of Transport. Uh, in Congress, you just had until December Marco Lavagna. I mean, there's plenty. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're optimistic. These are all people yeah, that right. you may not agree with them on everything, 
But these are people that perhaps don't carry the burden of a past political world or a political set of arguments. They're not burdened by the past, if I can put it that way. They weren't shaped in that period. You weren't shaped in that period. So it's a question of maybe we have to kind of get, if I can put it this way, maybe we have to get beyond some of the baby boomers and we have to wait a little bit. Yeah, that's a way of putting it. I don't want to put words in your mouth. It's not a totally fair way to describe because you were describing, for example, the governor of Cordoba, Schiaretti, is a baby boomer and is somebody who's been a very constructive, interesting force in the Peronist Party, for example, is which a little bit to what you were saying, Juan Schiaretti. Yeah, you had exceptions on, on both sides because you only have exceptions of young politicians which still insist with confrontation and verbal confrontation as a way of constructing political identity. So you have exceptions on both sides. You have boomers that have worked a lot for consensus and used dialogue very frequently, and then you have young politicians that insist with the receipts. So we can't generalize necessarily about generations per se, and there's always going to be grid people in every generation, but perhaps there's an opportunity as a new generation emerges of all Argentine politicians um, across the spectrum who don't have sort of this burden of history that may create opportunities to create this consensus that, that we've been talking about a little bit in this conversation. That's right. That's really interesting. Look, Nicholas, I am so appreciative that you would take the time to do this. It's really fabulous to hear your voice. I'm quite grateful that you would give me the time Thanks for your public service. I think serving in politics is an honorable profession. We need good people, whether in the United States or whether Argentina or else, Spain or elsewhere, to enter the arena, to quote former President Nixon. So I consider it a very honorable calling, and it's easy for me to be at a think tank and think deep ideas, but ultimately we need elected officials who, in Espanol, ponen la cara, who put the face and go and run to enact change. So it's a very important function that politicians play. If we believe in democracy, it's it's important. So thanks for running. Thanks for your public service. This has been great. And let's stay in touch, Nicolas. Well, of course. And thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nicolas. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 